If you would please, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 35. In Genesis chapter 35, we see a wide variety of events in the life of Jacob. And as we'll consider, it's not completely foreign to our experience as well. A variety of experiences. Some good, some encouraging, some helpful, some discouraging, some sad, some sinful. So let's look to the text, Genesis chapter 35. As we consider the chapter this morning, we'll consider it under, under three main points. Number one being put away the foreign gods. Put away the foreign gods. Number two, don't despise reminders. Don't despise reminders. And number three, our world is fallen. Our world is fallen. So put away the foreign gods. Don't despise reminders. Our world is fallen. We'll be uh, working through the entire chapter of Genesis 35, but we'll be reading it in, uh, in sections. So first, let's look to the first four verses. Genesis 35, beginning in verse 1. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and live there. And make there an altar to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make there an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, and the rings which were in their ears, And Jacob hid them under the oak, which was near Shechem. And so, first of all, we see in this God's command to Jacob there in verse 1. The command is that he go up to Bethel, that he dwell there, at least for a time, that he make there an altar to God who had appeared to him when he fled from Esau. And of course, this is pointing back to the events of Genesis 28, when the Lord appeared to Jacob at Bethel and affirmed to him and confirmed to him the Abrahamic covenant that he would receive the land, that his descendants would be like the dust of the earth, and that through him all families of the earth would be blessed. And God had promised Jacob there that he would be with him wherever he went, that he would keep him wherever he went. And Jacob, for, the, for his part, if you recall there at the end of Genesis 28, had made a vow. He said, if God will be with me, or it could also be translated, seeing that God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return from my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and of all that you Give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. That's Genesis 28, 20 through 22. And Jacob's statement there that that pillar that he had set up when he was running away from his brother Esau and running to Haran, to Laban, his, his uh, uncle in the east, when he made this statement that he would set up this pillar that it would be God's house, signifies Jacob's intention that he would worship God there on account of the provision and protection which the Lord had promised to him. He said, that place is Bethel, which is the house of God. That would be the place to which Jacob would return and would offer worship and sacrifices to the Lord. And here in Genesis 35, 
God tells Jacob to go up to Bethel and to make an altar. In effect, this is God's command to Jacob for him to keep the vow that he had made there at the end of Genesis 28. And Jacob does exactly as he was commanded. First, however, we should notice the preparation that he makes. He says to his household and all who were with him there in verses 2 and 3, he says, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make there an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And his household and all who were with him complied with that command which he gave them. They gave him all of their foreign gods and the rings which were in their ears and Jacob buried them there in the ground. Now, for those who are curious, Moses doesn't name any names here, does he, in terms of who had the gods, who had the idols. Now, could have been Rachel, right? Rachel, as we know, stole Laban's household idols, the teraphim, as she uh, was fleeing from her father and from her father's house. Maybe she still had Laban's idols with her, and maybe she had been superstitiously devoted to them this whole time. We don't know. Maybe the idolatry existed not in the, uh, the family of Jacob, but in and among the, the servants or the household. Or perhaps they still had with them those wives and children of Shechem. You remember last week in Genesis 34 that they had, had plundered the, the city of Shechem after they killed all the men and were explicitly told that they had taken uh, for themselves, the, uh, they had taken with them the, the wives and children. Maybe those people were still with the household of Jacob. We don't know for sure. And maybe they were the ones who had the idols. Moses doesn't name names here to gratify our curiosity, and so we'll, we'll let the matter rest there. There were some people there with Jacob who had idols, and they gave them to Jacob at his command, and he buried them. The important thing to note is that this is a time of household purification. And this is signified in that they, they washed themselves, and they changed their clothing, signifying purification, kind of a new start, a dedication of themselves to the Lord. They get rid of the foreign gods and of the earrings. Now, we need to understand that this, of course, doesn't make the case that earrings are inherently sinful. When the Lord was describing in figurative fashion his care for Israel in Ezekiel 16, 12, he says of her, I also put a ring in your nostril and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Proverbs 25, 12, we find that like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. In both cases, the earring is presented as something that is good, something that is pleasing, which would not be the case if it were something that were inherently sinful in and of itself. The situation here with regard to these earrings must have been that they were in some way or the other carrying idolatrous baggage with them in that perhaps they had idolatrous images carved on them or had somehow been tied up in idolatrous practice. And so Jacob's household here cleans house, so to speak. They get rid of the foreign gods, they get rid of the idolatrous paraphernalia, and they go up to Bethel. They get rid of the idols and they go to the house of God. Now we don't know the details, again, of who had the idols or what the ins and outs of their idolatry looked like for those who had them. But Jacob certainly knew that it was incompatible with going up to Bethel to worship God. And so it is today as well. All idols must be put away. 
and God alone must be worshipped. We read those words of Christ in Matthew six twenty four this morning. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That's true. You can't serve God and wealth. You can't serve God and any other idol. So we have to get rid of the idols, whatever they are, however hard it may be to get rid of them and bury them. Now, in Jacob's context, the idols were easy to spot, right? It's an image of wood or stone or metal or something of that nature. And in many places in the world today, it is still the same. The idols are there on the surface. You can easily point them out. You can, in one sense, easily get rid of them. But some idols are much more subtle than that, aren't they? We read in Ephesians 5, 5, for instance, that a covetous man is an idolater. And in that text that, uh, that Jim read for us this morning, Colossians chapter 3, in verse 5, it speaks of greed, which is idolatry. Or, as the ESV translated it, covetousness, which is idolatry. And when we, when we hear those verses, Ephesians 5, 5 and Colossians 3, 5, our minds first go in the direction of uh, those things being a prohibition of greed or covetousness in the sense of monetary wealth, being covetous or greedy for money. And that's, that's fully appropriate. Those verses certainly do proscribe materialistic greed. But the word that is translated as, as covetousness or as greed has the sense of insatiableness, the continuous desire for more. It is that insatiable desire for more and more stuff, more and more things, more and more whatever that is idolatrous. So just, just think with me. Back, back to the Ten Commandments. The command against coveting is not limited in one direction, is it? It's, it's rather, rather all-encompassing. Exodus twenty seventeen: You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. There are several things specifically on the list. And then, just in case we didn't get the point, we are forbidden from coveting anything that belongs to our neighbor. And Jesus himself tells us that there are more than one types of greed. When he said in Luke twelve fifteen, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Now, now I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But my sense is that for most of us, whatever idolatrous tendencies our hearts have, we are probably going to fall under under this umbrella, this, this tendency toward insatiability. Though, with that said, we should keep in mind... Both the first and second commandments, right? Number one, you have no other gods before me. And number two, we are not to make unto the Lord any graven images, right? And so, obviously, we need to keep in mind the first and second commandments. No other gods, no images of the true God. But, again, I think that probably for most of us, we, in our sin in this regard, are going to fall into the the error of this, this greediness, this covetousness, this insatiability. And so think of the words of Agur in Proverbs 30, verses 15 and 16, when he says, The leech has two daughters. Give 
give. There are three things that will not be satisfied. Four that will not say enough. Sheol and the barren womb, earth that is never satisfied with water, and fire that never says enough. Now, when you first read through Proverbs chapter 30, you might be wondering, what, what is this all about? What is Agur trying to say here? Is this just a, a random observation about some natural phenomenon that just happened to be kind of insatiable and unquenchable? Is he just pointing something out and stepping back and saying, what do you know? That's pretty cool. Whoever thought of that? I don't think that's what Agur is doing there. I think he's, he's actually trying to make a point and that he does so indirectly in, in that case. He's, he's drawing our attention to these things that are destructive by their overindulgence, by their overconsumption. And when we, we hear that, our thoughts should turn to this issue of, of insatiability, right? That we can't get enough. And in doing so, we should realize that we all, in one way or the other, have this same tendency as the leech, and Sheol, and the barren womb, and dry earth, and fire, that unchecked our own hearts are leeches that cry out, give, 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 give. And even after they have sucked all of the lifeblood out of the things of the world, they're still saying, give, give. And if we don't watch out, we will find ourselves that we ourselves never say enough and that we are consuming goods or people to our own destruction. Our problem in this regard is, as one minister of old put it, he said, the horse leech, horse leech has but two daughters, but we have, I know not how many, craving lusts. Till they be served, they are incessantly crying, give, give, but are much more unsatisfied than horse leeches. For they will be filled in time, and when they are filled, they tumble off and there is an end. But our lusts will never be satisfied. Someone has compared our lusts to the seven cows in Pharaoh's dream that were, were skinny and gaunt. And they ate up the fat cows and they were still skinny and gaunt at the end of it. That's, that's the problem with us, right? Is that our hearts are lustful, greedy, covetous, and we have these jealous desires, these cravings within us, and we keep on wanting more and more, but as much as we get, we're never satisfied. This is true in the realm of money. This is true in the realm of sex, personal advancement, personal property, uh, the realm of food and drink, the realm of entertainment, the realm of recreation, on down, on down the list. Pick, pick your poison. You pick it. It is there. That's not to say that we all have the exact same set of cravings, but it is to say that in your particular area of craving, whatever it is, you're never going to be satisfied by the things of this world. You get, you get, you get, you say give, 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 you never get enough. And what is worse is that when we do this, we become idolaters. We are serving these things for which our appetite is never satisfied. We're serving it instead of God. And when we do that, we're showing up wrath for ourselves. And so, what do we do? Well, what we need to do is to give up the idols, to bury them in the ground, and to go up to the house of God, to Bethel, and to worship. And so, then how do we do that? Well, we need to to recognize that these covetous desires, as we've been saying, will never be satisfied. Insatiable desires are just that. They're, They're insatiable. As much as you get, we'll be seeking more, and even when you get more, you still end up unsatisfied. And, and what we're doing in all of this is that we're placing an expectation on 
things of this earth which they were never meant to, to live up to. Our hearts were never meant to be satisfied with the things of this earth. And in doing what we're doing when we idolize these things, we're elevating the created entities to the level of the creator who made all things. God is the one who made all things, and he made all things for his own glory. And therefore, God is the one and the only one that we must worship and serve. Now, we know that all things created by God are good and that nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5. That is to say that all things are useful and right and good in their right places. But if they get out of place, they get out of order, then everything gets jumbled and messed up. And so we have to understand that when we become covetous, that our desires are inordinate, they're they're disordered, and therefore they are ungodly. When we become covetous, we're transferring our trust and, in a way, our, our worship, even if it's not outward worship, even if we're not praying to the thing or bowing down to it, we're still transferring our affections to that thing. And we're doing the same thing that the Lord accused his people of doing in Jeremiah 2.13 when he said, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves broken cisterns that hold no water. Forsake God, who is the one who gives us living water, and instead we, we dig for something else, and the thing that we dig for ends up turning out to be nothing. It's a, it's a cistern, which is supposed to hold water, but it can't hold any water. The water, the water flows out of it. And that's what we do when we seek and serve created things rather than the creator. We are exchanging the glory of the immortal God for the fading glimmer of the passing world. And so we have to understand that God himself must be the object of our desire. We have to learn to stay with Asaph in Psalm seventy-three twenty-five: Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. We have to understand that the Lord is the one we must seek and worship, that he alone is worthy of our worship and our service, that he alone can satisfy our hearts. And so let's bury the idols, whatever those idols are, and let's join with Jacob and go up to Bethel to worship God. Now, let's look ahead to verses 5 through 15, and we'll read about what happened to Jacob as he went up to Bethel, and we'll come to our second point, which is don't despise reminders. Let's pick up reading in verse 5. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him, When he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak, and it was named Alon Bakoth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. 
Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. In obedience to the Lord's command, Jacob and his family leave Shechem, where they had been, and they went up to Bethel. As we noted last week, verse 5 shows the manner in which they were kept safe. There was a great terror that came upon the surrounding cities so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob in retaliation for what Simeon and Levi had perpetrated in uh, their murderous uh, attack upon the city of Shechem. And this was the gracious hand of God upon his people as he kept the promise which he had made to Jacob back in Genesis 28, 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And so by God's preserving power, Jacob and his family returned to Bethel and they worshiped God. And they built there this altar called El Bethel, which is the God of Bethel. Now surely this was a great thing and a wonderful occasion upon which to worship the Lord. Just try to imagine yourself being in Jacob's shoes. He had been there. By this point, it had probably been, I would say, maybe in the neighborhood of 30 years earlier when he was fleeing away to the land. If we do the, do the computations of Jacob having been 20 years there with his father-in-law Laban and then reckoning that, that Dinah was the last of the children of Leah and then in Gen- by the time you get to Genesis 34, Leah is of marriageable age. I think there's a good chance that 30 years could have gone by, uh, by uh, between Jacob's two visits to Bethel. The first when God appeared to him and Jacob made his vow and then this second uh, coming of Jacob there to Bethel. He is back. He has his family with him, all the possessions with which God has blessed him. And now he's worshiping the Lord. He is uh, sacrificing to the Lord. He's reflecting on all of the Lord's goodness to him. And as Jacob is there, we find the Lord appearing to him again. He confirmed Jacob's new name. That his name was Israel. If you think back to Genesis 32, he had received this at the time of the, of the wrestling match when he had wrestled with the Lord there in Genesis 32. And then in verses 11 and 12, the Lord speaks to Jacob in a way that is reminiscent of the way that the Lord had spoken to Abraham back in Genesis 17 when the Lord gave to Abraham the covenant of circumcision. In both cases, the Lord identifies himself as God Almighty, that is, as El Shaddai. And just as the Lord had said to Jacob that he would no longer be called Jacob, but rather Israel, so also in Genesis 17, 5, the Lord had renamed Abram. He had said that Abram would no longer be called Abram, but rather he would be called Abraham. In both places, the Lord had promised that many nations would come forth from Abraham, Genesis 17, from Jacob, Genesis 35, and there is also in both places the promise of the land. And so there is, there is some sense in which this revelation from God to Jacob is not only a recapitulation of the previous revelations which God had given to Jacob and a reiteration of the previous promises and the new name that Jacob had already received, but this revelation to God of God to Jacob at Bethel this second time is almost a recapitulation of God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. 
Now, obviously, this is significant because here Jacob is following in the footsteps of Abraham. Just as Abraham had received the covenant promises, so also does Jacob. And isn't that important? That there's this reiteration of these promises to Jacob. We might sometimes be tempted to think, well, God had told him once. God already gave him the promise that he was going to have a great nation come from him. Why, why bother telling him the second time? God had already told him once. His name was going to be Israel, not Jacob. Why, why bother this second time around? But think with me just how helpful actually are the reminders of God's truth and God's promises that come to us along the way. God's revelation to Abraham, the covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17, followed on the heels of Abraham's misstep, taking Hagar in Genesis 16. And so also here, God's revelation to Jacob in Genesis 35 follows on the heels of some bad decisions, right? Follows on the heels of Genesis 34, when uh, Jacob thought that he and his family could be wiped out by the people of the land because of the murderous deeds of Simeon and Levi. But, thank God, neither Abraham's missteps nor the missteps of Jacob and his sons could undo God's covenant promises. The promises were still good. And the Lord showed his goodness and his faithfulness not only by remaining faithful to those promises which were already given, but the Lord also showed his grace by reiterating those promises to Abraham and now here to Jacob. And the Lord does the same for us. Let's face it, we, we need reminders. We need refreshers. Sometimes our greatest need is not to learn some new truth from the word of God, something that was unknown to us before, but rather to be reminded of what we already have known, what we already have become convinced of before. Now, certainly, sometimes we do need to learn new information. But sometimes an even greater need is to be reminded of the things which have already been made known to us. And then those reminders serve to strengthen us, serve to aid and to fuel our worship. That's what Jacob did here. After the Lord had, had gone up from him, after making this, this revelation to him, we see in verse 14 that he set up this pillar of stone and that he poured a drink offering upon it, that he poured oil upon it. And so, friends, in light of that, let's not despise the reminders that the Lord gives to us along the way. Let's not despise old truths already known, already loved, which are brought back to our minds afresh once again. Let's rather understand that we, that we need these reminders. The, this is good and healthy for us. And this is one of the reasons why we gather every week as a church, is to hear the word of God. And obviously we want to learn new things, but a lot of times we just need to be reminded of what we have already known. And far from being pointless, these reminders serve to strengthen us. They serve to, to recalibrate us, as it were. They help to keep us focused on Christ because we live a week of life out in the world and we can easily get distracted and sidetracked from where we ought to be. We can get focused on the wrong thing. And what we need is a reminder of God's word, his law and his gospel, his commandments and his promises. I think in some ways we might compare God's truth to a nail and every repetition of our hearing of it to a blow of the hammer that drives it in a little further. 
Every time we hear the truth afresh, it ought to go in a little bit further than it did before. It ought to fortify us further and strengthen us and perhaps touch us in ways and places that it never has before. Now again, sometimes we do need to learn new things and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, to go on from milk to solid food, to use that language of Hebrews 6. But sometimes we simply need a reiteration of what has already been told to us before. That's what happened largely here to Jacob in Genesis 35, is that the Lord reminded him and reiterated to him the promises that he had had before. And sometimes that's exactly what we need. So let's not despise the reminders that come to us along the way. Now, as we come to our third point, our world has fallen. Let's look at uh, verses 16 through 29. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, and the pillar of Rachel's grave is to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. It came about while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, there were 12 sons of Jacob, sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan, and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad, and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now, in these final verses of chapter 35, we see some rather important developments in the life of Jacob. There are highlights here. The birth of Benjamin, the last of the 12 sons of Jacob, is born, the son of his right hand. And this was, depending on how you take, uh, how you take Rachel's words back, from back in Genesis 30, 24, either uh, the answer to Rachel's prayer or the fulfillment of her words. In Genesis 34, she had said, May the Lord give me another son. Or it could also be translated in the sense of the Lord shall add to me another son. However you want to take the words of, of Rachel from back in chapter 30, whatever way you choose, the Lord did it here. She did have another son. The Lord did add to her another son. And thus the whole list of the 12 sons is given there in verses 23 through 26. The Lord had blessed Jacob and had multiplied him indeed. And we see down in verse 27 that he went to see Isaac. It's a wonderful thing for father and son to be reunited. Now, by this point, I think it's probably likely that Jacob had been back in the promised land for, for 10 or 12 years, at least. And I would think that it's likely that this is not the first time he had been to see Isaac in that whole time. But 
one way or the other. He goes to his father there at Hebron. This is the place where Abraham had sojourned. The father and son are reunited. This is, this is wonderful. This is good. But you'll also note that these highlights in the life of Jacob are also riddled with sadness and also with evil. There's the death of Rachel. Her labor with Benjamin was difficult. and She died in childbirth. This was the wife that Jacob loved. You remember that she was, she was at the end of that receiving line as they were going out to, to meet Esau in case anything turned violent. Rachel would have the best opportunity to get away. She's the wife that he loved. We also see the, the death of Isaac at the end of the chapter. Even though he was an old man, lived to a ripe old age, longer even than Abraham, his father. Nevertheless, he died. And it's not easy when a loved one dies. There's sadness and grief when these things come. This is not the way things are supposed to be. This is not the way it was from the beginning. And we also see the fruit of total depravity. Verse 22, as Reuben lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. We can't say for sure whether this was some kind of a power play on the part of Reuben or just what exactly he intended in that, but this is profoundly wicked. A man took his father's wife. Sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, doesn't it? As a result of this, Reuben lost his privileged position as the firstborn son. And we read about that development in Jacob's words in Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4, where he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might in the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And we also find in First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1, that because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. In all of this, we, we see that the fruits of the fall and of the curse were never too far away from Jacob. In the midst of these highlights, the birth of a son, rounding out the twelve, reunion with a father, good things. But yet among them is sprinkled all of this sin and death. And there was a touch of this earlier in the chapter as well, up in verse 8, where we saw the death of Rebekah's nurse, Deborah. Somehow she had joined up with the household of Jacob now that they were back in the land of Canaan, and she died there while they were at Bethel and was buried under the oak. And this caused them sadness, as we can tell, because they named the oak Alan Bakoth, which is the oak of weeping. And so even while they were there at Bethel, even where the Lord had showed up, spoken to Jacob. Jacob and his household are still there facing the effects of the curse and of the fall. Despite all of these, these good things that are happening in the life of Jacob, again, the fruits of the fall and of the curse are never, never too far away. And similarly, they're never too far away from us either, are they? Some of you are maybe familiar with those words of Charles Dickens that he opened his novel, The Tale of Two Cities, with when he said, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of fooliness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. And isn't that the world that we live in? We have the promises of God, And yet, our loved ones die. Loved ones 
sometimes prove untrue. We have new life in Christ and we understand from the scriptures that we will inherit the world to come, yet people sin against us and sometimes we sin against them. Sometimes, as in verse 22, those sins are within a family. A son sins against his father, a concubine sinned against her husband. Occasions of joy and occasions of sorrow are not necessarily too far separated. Sometimes the event may be a joyful one for some and yet a sorrowful one for another. If you remember back when the the temple was restored in Ezra chapter 3 and they, they laid the foundation, the younger generation who had no knowledge of Solomon's grand temple were, were rejoicing. They were, they were very joyful and excited and happy at this. But the older men, the older ones who remembered Solomon's temple, they were, they were weeping with sadness. Some wept, some shouted for joy. The effects of the fall and of the curse are never too far away. This was the world that Jacob lived in. This is the world that we live in too. And this is the world that our children, grandchildren, and so on, will live in until Christ returns. And so, in light of that, then, we need to be realistic in our expectations, and we need to be biblically prepared. On the one hand, we don't want to be like an Eeyore, who's always looking down and always being pessimistic and gloomy. We shouldn't adopt that persona, because as Christians, we're commanded to be always rejoicing. Philippians 4.1, rejoice in the Lord always Again, I say rejoice. We're to be rejoicing because of Christ, because of his coming, because of who he is and what he has done and accomplished for us and what he has given to us. But on the other hand, our rejoicing in Christ and our joy in him must be in accordance with reality. That is to say, we can't simply plug our ears to the sins and difficulties of this world as if nothing is wrong. And... As we all know, and as we all see so clearly here in the text, there's a lot that's wrong with the world. This is a world of sin and death. And if we walk around the world with unrealistic expectations, there's going to be an awful lot of disappointments. We have disappointments enough if we have our eyes wide open to the fact that we live in a world of sin and death. So we have to have realistic expectations for the world in which we live, understanding the current regime of sin and death. And so... Just read the book of Ecclesiastes, and that will, that will add some realism to your perspective. And so Solomon says, Ecclesiastes 9:11, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Now certainly we understand that ultimately all that comes to pass happens in the providence of God under his sovereign design and control. But from our earthly vantage point, from this earthly horizon, it looks an awful lot like time and chance as opposed to skill, ability, and so forth, bringing forth what we would naturally expect to be the fruits of skill and ability and so on. Solomon also went on to say, Ecclesiastes 9.11, he says, Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare... So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. He says elsewhere, Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning sowing or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. Ecclesiastes 11.6 In other words, life in a fallen world is hard. Life in a fallen world is unpredictable. 
and even as Christians with the promises of God, this life is not heaven on earth. Even within the church, as wonderful as it is to be a member of the household of faith and to have the word of God and to hear it together and to worship and fellowship together regularly, we have to take things in stride and we have to understand that this is not the promised land. We're on our way to the promised land and, Lord willing, we're all going there together. But this isn't it. We're not there just yet. And so we have to deal with the fact that our fellow Christians are going to let us down sometimes. Sometimes we're going to let them down. Sometimes they're going to sin against us. Sometimes we're going to sin against you. This is not as it should be. But it is as it is. It is what happens. What did you expect? Right? James says we all stumble in many ways. James 3.2 what did you expect that life was going to be like when you get a bunch of people together who all stumble in many ways? We understand there are going to be some bumps along the way. Sometimes it might just be worse than a bump. And when that happens, we have to have recourse to the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, that's kind of sobering. That's kind of bad news. But there is good news. And it's here in our text in Genesis 35. In the midst of... All of the triumph and tragedy that we see here in Jacob's life, in the midst of all of the triumph and tragedy, there is hope. And we catch a glimpse of that in verse 11. Look back up to verse 11. Part of God's promise to Jacob there at Bethel was that kings would come forth from him. And indeed, look at the history of the nation. Kings did come forth from him. Some were good, like David, like Hezekiah, like Josiah. Some were evil, like Saul like Jeroboam, like Ahab, and so on. Kings did come forth from him. Those kings in the Old Testament time did good or evil, and even the best of them did a a mixture of good and evil, as the Old Testament is clear about. They died and went to their graves, and they will be raised for the judgment on the last day. But among the kings which came forth from the loins of Jacob, there was one who was different from the rest. Now, he was like the others in that he was a man, that he came forth from the loins of Jacob. He was like them in that he was tempted. He was like them in that he was subject to weakness. He was like them in that he knew what it was to suffer. But he was unlike them as well. Unlike them, this king never sinned. Unlike them, this king did not die as a sinner, but rather died in the place of sinners. Unlike them, this king did not stay dead, but rose from the grave on the third day after his death. And as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that it was at the resurrection that this king was declared to be the Son of God with power. This king is our Lord Jesus Christ. Before his birth, his mother was told he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. If you remember how it was when Jesus was before Pilate, and Pilate was was asking him, they said, they say that you're a king. And Jesus doesn't really want to engage on that point. He says, you say that I'm a king. But he's also clear, though, that he really is a king, because he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And when Pilate had that inscription written, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, he wasn't lying, and he spoke more truth than he knew. Jesus, indeed, is King. 
This Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, and then the third day rose from the grave. And 40 days after that, ascended into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. As we sang this morning from Psalm 110, And the good news is that this king saves sinners. He saves them by means of his death and resurrection. He cleanses all who come to him in faith. And so turn to him, repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives forgiveness and new life to all who will turn to him. And this is the good news. But this is not all. Christ is coming again one day to raise the dead and to judge all in righteousness and to bring destruction to this earth and to usher into existence the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells and all will be right and good then there will be no more mixture of good and evil that we see here no more mixture of the triumph and tragedy that we see in genesis 35 and that we know so well from our own lives when the king comes the first order of things will have passed away be no more death, no more curse, no more crying, no more weeping. The first order of things will be done away with, and all will be set right. And so, friends, take heart. There's a lot of bad news here in this chapter, but there is good news to be found here as well. And it is found in the fact that a specific king, one of the many, will come forth from Jacob's body. And this king is Jesus Christ. This king has come. This king will come again. So may we be those who love and long for his appearing. May we say from the heart, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for for Christ, that he is a king, that he is risen, that he is the conqueror. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us in the midst of a world of, of sin and death, the fruits and effects of the curse and the fall, Lord, that you would fortify us in Christ, that we would be strengthened in him, that we would be longing for his return, for the final judgment, for all to be set right at last. Pray that you would strengthen us and help us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.